It is summer in Kyoto, and today I'm walking along a narrow, tree-lined path next to a small stream. This path is known as the Tetsugaku no Michi, or the Philosopher's Walk. The reason this road is named as such is because it is said to have been a favorite walk of one Kitaro Nishira, a professor of philosophy at Kyoto University in the first half of the 20th century. It is said that he walked here daily, contemplating his work. Nishida is considered the founder of the Kyoto School of Philosophy, the preeminent movement after the Meiji Restoration in Japan, where thinkers grappled with the new Western philosophical ideas, coming up with new ideas that proved productive for both East and West. In order to learn more about Japanese philosophy and the Kyoto School, I am speaking to Mayuko Uehara, Professor of Japanese Philosophy at Kyoto University. She is also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Japanese Philosophy. I could hardly find anyone better to explain the Kyoto School in Japanese Philosophy to me. You're listening to the Undisciplined Podcast, and please enjoy. Um, if you don't mind, could you just briefly tell me about your academic background, uh, kind of biographical details about uh, maybe where you started studying, how you became interested in philosophy and the research topics that you are, have been interested in before and what you're interested in now. Okay. Uh, when I was a young student in Japan in the 1980s, my major was French literature. And uh, after finishing my in French licence, four years uh, degree, bachelor uh, degree, I worked in a French company uh, in Tokyo uh, three years. And after that, I changed my mind. Uh, I went to France. I stayed there almost 17 years. So when I went to France, uh, it was in 1990 to stay 17 years. So I came back to Tokyo in 2007. So my uh, doctoral studies, all of the doctoral studies were done in France, Mm -hmm. in Paris. I restarted my major, French literature, in University of Paris 7, and, but I wanted to change my major because I was very interested in the question of subject. Uh, the notion, uh, this is a term, polysemic uh, term, mm-hmm. it's very complicated term, so I wanted, I wanted to clarify uh, the notion of the subject. And I encountered Professor Augustin Berg, who is uh, a specialist of uh, methodology. Do you know the name of a friend, Augustin Berg? You don't know. Uh, he's, uh, at that time, he was, he was a very young scholar in 1990. Now he's very famous methodologist uh, in Europe, in America, and in Japan. 
and I wanted to study with him and he understood very well the complicated question of subject. So he accepted my candidate and I start my second phase of research. So I uh, I done my master's and Dewa. Uh, this is a very special uh, French degree and doctor. And my professor Wistenberg advised me to specify more uh, my question. And the question subject is so vast uh, that I would risk uh, do nothing. So, I think this is a common, <laughs> common thing for most PhD students yeah. is the supervisor yes, makes them always, limit yeah. their... Yes, their this is my... Now, actually, uh, now, this is my role. I always say to my students, please specify. Yeah. So, Augustin uh, Berg advised me to read and study Nishida Kitaro. Because in his philosophy, there are a lot of questions of subject. So I started to read Nishida Kitaro in Paris. On the, so as a Japanese student, you were recommended Nishida Kitaro from a French professor. From a French right. professor. Uh, professor Berk uh, was very interested in Watsuji Tetsuro mm-hmm. at the time. So he commented mm-hmm. uh, the trans- English translation of Watsuji. Uh, he criticized this translation. Uh, the translator uh, didn't understand well the notion of fudo made by Watsuji. Fudo. And so I read the fudo and I read the Nishida Kitaro. But I was not, I had not been a student in philosophy, so I uh, encountered a lot of difficulties. But I advanced. I advanced to find um, my own way to profound research of uh, the subject, subjectivity and subject. Finally, I started to research how, uh, how to start, uh, research uh, Nishida Kitaro. I choose the way of the research of terminology and concept and translation. In this perspective, I found that uh, we could do very specific uh, reading of philosophical text and uh, finally i wrote dewa dewa this is a, a, a kind of degree before phd this is very specific uh, degree in france and uh, i continued the same way in phd so i finished finally i finished my phd uh, with uh, dissertation titled so I don't remember well exactly the title, but a uh, question of the translation in Nishida Kitaro's philosophy, mm. something like that. In French, I wrote uh, my PhD dissertation in French. Mm-hmm. And uh, after, just before finishing my PhD, I had a proposition to teach in University of Lyon, third. So I, I teached. Uh, Japanese culture and Japanese culture, society, and language in this university, in the city of Lyon. Uh, so I did that for three, two years and a half, or three years almost. And I came back to Japan, 
because I uh, received a post in private university, uh, Meisei, Meisei University in Tokyo. I worked there uh, six years, and after that I came to Kyoto. So, from 2013. Yeah, your story, I think, brings up already many of the questions that I wanted to discuss today. So, if for someone who has a background or who has read philosophy with perhaps the great French philosophers or Germans or English, what we can now generally call Western philosophy, what is the difference between the main... I mean, it's a very big field to generalize, but what is the difference between Japanese philosophy and and Western philosophy or European philosophy? That's a very complicated question. Uh, so I know that there are many discussions and many ideas, and it's not finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just let me define what is Japanese philosophy, my definition, mm-hmm. or uh, a, a definition of this department of Japanese philosophy. Mm-hmm. As a professor in this department, I teach Japanese philosophy from the period of Meiji era. So, this is a period Japanese introduced Western philosophy in Japan. This is the one idea. So, Japanese philosophy is based on logic and terminology and concept of Western philosophy. And of course, this is not only pure Western philosophy, but at the same time, our predecessors, Japanese predecessors, try to make something different from Western philosophy uh, by reinterpreting and criticizing pre-modern oriental philosophy, uh, such as Buddhism and Confucianism. On the other hand, there remains always a discussion what is the Japanese? What is Japanese philosophy, and uh, how to treat, how to consider pre-modern Japanese thought? Uh, before many Western philosophers insisted and refused um, Japanese pre-modern philosophy as philosophy, mm. they considered that this is not this was not philosophy, but. From uh, 15 years, 10 years, uh, the field of Japanese philosophy became very active. Now, actually, there are several base of Japanese philosophy in the world, in Europe, in America, uh, North America, in South America, and uh, East Asia. There are some universities and there are some Japanese philosophers, non-Japanese, are very interested in this field. So, the situation of the research of Japanese philosophy changed dramatically from 10 years. So, could we say that at the moment, Japanese philosophy is going through a kind of a renaissance or golden period? Or Yes. Yeah, you choose a very good term, golden period. <laughs> So now, with a comparison with 10 years ago, and now maybe there's almost no Western philosophers refuse Japanese philosophy as philosophy. We can call Japanese philosophy at present philosophy. So another specific aspect of 
Japanese philosophy, mm. I think, is an important part, is what is specifically called the Kyoto School. Mm-hmm. Especially you yourself are mm. a professor in the department where the school mm-hmm. originated. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about specifically the Kyoto School of Japanese philosophy? This is a very delicate question. Of course, from many years ago, Kyoto School has been considered as representative and maybe only one concrete realization of Japanese philosophy. But I, my standpoint is different because I attempted to find out other aspects of Japanese philosophy than Kyoto School's uh, thought. And for example, I tried to study and teach uh, the philosophy of Meiji era at the beginning of the history of Japanese philosophy. And uh, I, can, I could find many interesting things. Of course, the way of thinking, way of philosophizing of the philosopher's Meiji era was not sophisticated. It was not like uh, today's way. But there are some interesting things we mm-hmm. can find then. So I would like to limit just Kyoto's, uh, philosoph- uh, Japanese philosophy to Kyoto school. And I think, I hope, I'm not the exceptional one, but today uh, many other uh, of my colleagues have the same view with me. So we shouldn't stop with the Kyoto School. There's much more in Japan to look at. Uh, That's a little different. What Kyoto School established as very precious thing so we should protect and we should not only uh, make archive of Kyoto school, but uh, we should reinterpret and utilize their thought. That means develop their thought in today's way. But this is one category of Japanese philosophy, one important category of Japanese philosophy. But Japanese philosophy is not limited to this, as I said before. I, I think I, we should um, find many other base, many other categories. Right. And it's possible, I'm sure. Mm. Then I would like to speak a bit more substantively about Japanese philosophy or the Kyoto School. Is As far as I can tell, without being an expert, that one of the central themes of the Kyoto School is that of nothingness mm-hmm. and this is perhaps related to, you say, your own previous interest in the subject. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that one of the philosophers that was from the West that was very influential in Japan was in the 20th century was perhaps Heidegger. Mm-hmm. And of course, he has his most famous work is Being in Nothingness. But at the same time, the concept of nothingness is seen as very central to mm-hmm. Kyoto school. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me perhaps in kind of simple terms what is meant by this notion of nothingness and how it is different from someone like Heidegger or Mm -hmm. other European philosophers. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is also a very difficult question, and uh, this is not a kind of uh, question to answer very easily. But what I can say now is uh, nothingness. The notion of nothingness is uh, fundamentally based on Buddhist ideas, Buddhist notion. So, nothingness in the sense of Kyoto school, or specifically uh, Nishida and Tanabe, has the power of overcoming all kinds of experiences and phenomena to, in French, aller au-delà, overcome to the other side of what we can know or what is knowable. And nothingness in sense of Kyoto school and uh, Buddhist has this kind of power. And I'm wondering if uh, West uh, nothingness, we use the same term, nothingness, but I'm wondering if uh, the nothingness in Western sense has the same power. Maybe in the religious area, we can find very similar uh, sense. But in philosophy, uh, I'm not sure. You think it's completely different mm. concepts. Mm. So one thing that I was also wondering about this notion of nothingness mm. is that at the moment in philosophy, it seems that ontology has become very fashionable mm. lately. Mm. And specifically, one branch of that that I'm very aware mm. of is object-orientated philosophy or ontology, perhaps actor-network theory, which is sociology, but mm -hmm. there's a turn towards an ontology about the physical world and the objects that fill it. Do you see any connection there or constructive relationship that can happen there between mm -hmm. these current mm -hmm. debates happening and Japanese philosophy mm -hmm. as such mm -hmm. or the idea of nothingness mm -hmm. as such? Is, is there a connection on that? Yes, it's very interesting point. Uh, you pointed out a very important thing. Nishida, who is the head of the uh, Kyoto School, Nishida and Tanabe the second, and some others, discussed a lot natural science in their philosophies. So they were very interested in what is object, what is subject. From the beginning of the philosophy, history of the philosophy, not only uh, Kyoto school, but many others of majors uh, tried to reconsider what was the relation between subject and, subject and object. I think in the history of Japanese philosophy, this question was the very main point of Japanese philosophy. But I can uh, exemplify some names such as Nishiyamane, Inoue Tetsujiro, Inoue Enryo. But Kyoto School, only uh, the first uh, philosophers who made a very constructive theory and logic was Kyoto, philosophers of Kyoto School. Uh, the first was Nishida. Nishida's main purpose of philosophizing is to propose another reading of subjectivity mm. of Western modern philosophy. Mm. 
uh, Nishida uh, was always a very big question. Western modern philosophy, he tried to uh, propose another paradigm than Western modern philosophy. So subject is not the most important, powerful uh, value, uh, but one of the perspective. If we, we utilize, use the terms object and subject, subject is only one side of the perspectives. I think in that sense, then, he was quite ahead of his time, or quite ahead of at least many Western... I think. I feel that in Western philosophy, only more recently that, that the subject-object distinction is yes. really being questioned mm-hmm. again after yeah. a, a few centuries. Yes. So... So, for example, Heidegger and Levinas, uh, many uh, French modern philosophers, Derrida, and etc., they knew this question, but Nishida did almost the same thing much before. Mm. Yes. I think especially in this time, it's a valuable mm. uh, question to ask mm. for many practical problems that we have. Yes. Another question I have, which is also related to your own research, is I know um, that you recently edited a volume mm. on the question of translation yes. and highlighting that there are some problems or gaps that occur mm. in the translation of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And also, I think this was part of your doctoral yes. dissertation. Yes. What are these, or the biggest problems that arise when we translate philosophical works? Because I'm guessing that mm-hmm. language is perhaps just one part of the problem. There's probably other things too. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about it? Yes, uh, thank you. You pointed out a very important point. But uh, first, what is language? This is a very difficult question. Uh, there are many points of view. Uh, how to consider uh, language. First, I uh, let me say my thesis. I think fundamentally translation is impossible. Okay. We cannot translate correctly, exactly, uh, the original text. And I tried to interpret this thing by applying to many things, uh, not only to the translation uh, what we say generally, but dialogue between us, dialogue between two persons who uh, speak one uh, same language. Because, for example, I cannot understand what one of my students say exactly. In, the, in daily life, we say, yes, I understand, I understand what you say well. But this is uh, one of the levels. If we de- uh, this level is destroyed, nothing is mm, possible. Right. Uh, yes, the social life is impossible. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is one thing. But fundamentally, I'm wondering if I could completely understand my students explained. I'm wondering if I rewrite completely what my student explained. Mm-hmm. I think it's impossible. 
this is the very fundamental essence of our conscious, our thinking and language. The relation between language and thinking. Language cannot appear exactly our, our thinking. But we need absolutely language to explain, to express ourselves. So, relation between language and thinking are dialectical. Language itself can be completed by thinking, and thinking it's, can be completed by language. So, thinking itself uh, is not independent. So, in this sense, I just very simply, briefly explain my uh, idea, the relation between two. So on this basis, I try to uh, think of translation. I, my position is that a translation is impossible in a profound sense, of course. I'm very, <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm very pessimist. But if we have this recognition, translation is impossible, we can keep always the effort mm. to understand well the other mm. and the text. Ah, and one more thing. Yes. In the field of philosophy, what is a translation? This is maybe, this is the, your first question. Mm -hmm. So translation is not a system to change the words. Change the language. It's not just Google Translate, yeah. but just translates every word, yeah. one by one. Yeah. No. Um, but in the field of uh, trans, uh, philosophy, the translation has a power to, of creativity. Anyhow, uh, we cannot exactly, completely um, original text of philosophy. Anyhow, there are many changes. A translator who is often philosophers himself, he translates the original text, but very often he creates something more than original text. This is uh, uh, in case of translation in general sense, but Nishida, for example, he was not translator, but in my sense, he created his uh, uh, philosophy in a kind of translation. He himself read directly uh, original text in German, French, Greek, Latin, etc., English. And he received many stock of conceptions and logic and many way of thinking in Western way. And he assimilated them. And he, so input and mm -hmm. output. When he output, he received, he created a new philosophy. But in the process of thinking of Nishida, I think it was a kind of a translation. So uh, this is what I insist mm -hmm. in my research of translation. Because I suppose even if you have two people who speak the same language, if, if you write a book mm -hmm. and I read it, and we both share the same language, I think even then I'm doing kind of a translation mm -hmm. of your book, right? Because as you said, we don't 
just copy each other's thoughts directly. Mm -hmm. So in writing and translation and then even in reading, there's a creative process happening. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes even the mistakes come to create something mm -hmm. new. I really like the idea of creative power of mistakes. Yeah, that's true. So another aspect of your work that is very interesting is concerning emotions. Mm -hmm. And this is also something I'm recently getting more interested in myself is the affective or emotional mm -hmm. level in philosophy and how we can think about that. Can you briefly tell me, because I know you're doing research uh -huh. on the face. Face. Uh, I guess that has a, is that connected to mm -hmm. emotion or affect and mm -hmm. also how that fits in mm -hmm within Japanese philosophy? Ah, yes, always. This is my very sustainable purpose. At present, I have not so many time, so mm -hmm. I, I say that I cannot do what I want to do. But my final purpose, purpose is to connect each subject, each problem, question of my uh, research, philosophical research, emotion, translation, and physical theory, etc., and face, etc. So yes, um, uh, the question of emotion and the facial expression are connected to Japanese philosophy. At present, I use Nishida's theory of active intuition. Yes, this is this is translation that the original term, active intuition. Uh, in Nishida, as you understand well now, uh, subjectivity, subject is not the controlled agent, but one side, only one, one side of some perspective uh, of recognition. So in this sense, action is very important in Nishida. Action means, in Nishida's sense, use physics. There is a movement of physics. We have all of the human being as each physic. So when we act, when we move, when we do something, always our physic move, our physic works. But this is not intellectual. We cannot limit this movement to intellectual area. Uh, in Nishida, he overcomes this intellectual area, mm. experience, only experience, intellectual experience area, but intuition, intuition intervene. We made something, for example, you made a computer. Mm. Yes, this is, the, in the process is very intellectual works, but some many points of this process is your intuition works function very well. So, uh, for Nishida, action, intuition are on the same level. This is very difficult for me to explain that. <laughs> so, maybe you couldn't understand well. Uh, please read my uh, English article later yeah. to understand better uh, action, intuition. But anyhow, based on this action, intuition, I attempt to explain what is the facial expression. I can connect this question of facial expression with the expression by language. 
for the question of language, I hope you you could understand better than this the question of facial expression. We cannot uh, express our ideas completely by language. It's impossible. Always something remains. Something、uh, couldn't appear completely by language. This is the limit of language. For facial expression, we can do. Can we express all our internal thing by facial expression? This is one of my question. And interesting on face is we can control some muscles, but others we cannot control. So、uh, two kind, very roughly, two kinds of muscles work. So our facial expression is very complicated. One part is controlled by the subject. But the other part is uncontrollable by the subject. So our face is,、uh, our facial expression is very mixed. But this thing is very important and connected by the creation, artistic creation,、mm. a poem,、uh, or a picture,、mm, or a sculpture, many forms of art. Can the artist Explain completely their emotion and ideas in their artistic object. I would say if an artist was able to do that, there wouldn't, we wouldn't need interpretation、mm-hmm. or we wouldn't have conflicting interpretations. Yes,、uh, interpretation、uh, is very important in, in this question, but what I want to say is the effect of a coincidence. Always some coincidence in artistic creation and in facial expression too, and maybe language expression too. I, I think I can kind of see the,、mm. the line that goes through <laughs> all your different topics.、Yeah. Really、uh, fascinating that I think you can connect them in a、yeah. very beautiful way.、Mm-hmm. Intention and no intention, coincidence and necessity.、Mm. Yeah, sorry. And what I'm also the impression I'm getting of Nishida is that his philosophy, it seems to me, always at some point comes back to, if I can call it this way, to the real world.、Mm-hmm. And that it,、yeah, you say,、exactly. always comes back to、yes. the body、mm. and action、mm. and even the subject object distinction,、mm. I think, is related. So it's intellectually complex, but comes back again to,、mm. I don't like using this word, but the real world.、Mm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Real world, exact、yeah. term.、Uh, Nishida, in his first philosophical essay, he used the term reality. Reality is translated into Japanese, of course, but in Japanese, this term is very philosophical and a special term. In English and French, We use always the same term.、Uh, reality is not specifically treated, but in Japanese,、mm. yes. So, reali- reality. And I think also your work too, you're talking about、mm. language and the mind, translation and transmitting information, but then、mm. also it comes back to something as concrete、yeah. as the face.、Mm. Solid. I really like that real philosophy. <laughs> Thank you.、Um, I, yes, at this very limited time, I couldn't explain、uh, in a way I wanted to, 
but in my articles I explained uh, much better <laughs> than my <laughs> rough uh, talk. And uh, yes, I in the near future, yes, I hope I will write something more complete way. <laughs> I think we're getting close to the end, but so you've said the work that you're doing and what you hope to do in the future. Mm. But if I could ask about the project of mm -hmm. Japanese philosophy more generally, mm -hmm. what do you think at the moment some of the important questions mm -hmm. or gaps that you see that still need to be addressed or what's the direction that you see Japanese philosophy going in the near future mm -hmm. if we're in this golden era? Mm -hmm. I'm here in Kyoto University mm -hmm. and this in this department of Japanese philosophy. This is the real center of the Japanese uh, research of Japanese philosophy in this university and maybe in Japan. Uh, so always I'm saying myself that I am one of the important promoter of a new projects of Japanese philosophy in Japan. So in Japan itself, I think I can realize this thing in Japan, but in the world, uh, in foreign countries and other cultural areas, uh, they are very active, maybe more than me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, recently, many interesting research projects appear. I know well because uh, I have many colleagues in other countries. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that that means I am I think I am a center of Japanese philosophy in Japan and I um, collaborate many of my uh, colleagues in the world in the other countries so we know each other always we follow <laughs> uh, the new project of the others we uh, know almost what happened <laughs> the other part of the world so I I can say one of the new projects to develop in the near future is archive uh, reinterpretation and find out new document, new archive, a new organization of archive. In this university too, we made this very historical review, Tetsudaku Kenkyu, on the this started in Taisho era, mm -hmm. so in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So was this the first mm -hmm. uh, philosophy journal? I think, uh, I, yes, I think this is the first journal of, yeah, in Kyoto. In Tokyo, based on to the University of Tokyo, there, is a, there exists similar re uh, journal this is uh, that journal is older than this journal. Mm. So uh, the first philosophical journal is that in one. Tokyo. Mm. In April, I called my colleagues from Tokyo, the University of Tokyo. We just uh, we or I organized a workshop uh, around two uh, journals. Mm. 
and we discussed how to use this document to develop actual Japanese philosophy. So this is a project, very, very important project. Practically, what will happen with these journals? Will you uh, them or digitize them? Yeah, digitize. We each university do now. I'm uh, responsible of this journal actually last year and this year. And the library, uh, Central Library of Kyoto University now advancing uh, digitalization on this journal. Mm -hmm. So in the second half of this year, uh, one important part will be done. You will have access to a digital uh, journal. But not so many people in the world will have access to this digitalized electronic journal. And many people will have a chance to understand, read and understand the Japanese philosophy. But if you can read the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think, is that proving to be a big barrier between the spread of Jap for the spread of Japanese philosophy outside of Japan? Language gap is, uh, yes, important, very important. I think the population of the person who learn Japanese language is uh, presently more than past. So I hope one important part of scholars of Japanese philosophy in the world can read very well the text written in Japanese. But of course, uh, this is not only the efforts of each one, but it depends on the character of each person. Yes, for example, one person is not interested in foreign language, wouldn't like really Japanese uh, language, mm. but would like to understand Japanese philosophy. So today, many <laughs> kind of persons, kind of scholars, translate Japanese philosophy. So, uh, our predecessors, three professors, in American professors, made this book. A Japanese source philosophy book. So this is kind of an encyclopedia of Japanese mm. philosophy from very ancient time mm. to today. It's a very beautiful book. Mm. Very beautiful book. It mm -hmm. took more than 10 years to realize oh, wow. this book. Many translations of extract of text and a simple explanation mm. of each text. So this is a very handy book to learn Japanese philosophy. So, oh, yes, I turn return to your uh, question. Uh, first one is for the future, for mm. new near future. First one is document, mm. research based on document, uh, looking for a new document. For example, these are documents, mm. letters written by some figures of Kyoto school. They are, mm, have not appeared. Mm. We have many things to do to uh, publish this kind mm. of letters archive and uh, sometimes we have a possibility to change some knowledges mm -hmm. that we uh, received and we consider uh, as very fixed mm -hmm. but sometimes if we examine 
closely this kind of new document, uh, we can change some knowledge. And uh, other things is to uh, research more widely and profoundly uh, the other parts of Japanese philosophy than Kyoto school. This is the point, uh, thing I pointed out the first. Japanese philosophy of Meiji era, Taisho era, and after World War II, the period that are not profoundly researched. Sounds like it's a very exciting time to uh, study Japanese philosophy. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to me. Very enlightening. Thank you. And that concludes my conversation with Professor Uehara. Thank you very much for listening. It seems that there's hardly been a better time to start studying Japanese philosophy, so if you are interested, look at some of the sources that Professor Uehara recommended. And also, I can only highly recommend that you look into her work as well. Speaking to her, I couldn't help but be reminded of a passage from The Three-Cornered World, originally published in 1906, contemporaneously with the start of the Kyoto School, written by Natsume Soseki, perhaps the great modern novelist of Japan. I have always thought the relationship between air, objects and colors to be one of the most fascinating studies that this world has to offer. The problem is whether one should make the colors of prime importance and thus bring out the quality of the air, or whether to disregard the air in favor of stressing the objects themselves. There is a third alternative, namely to make the air the most important factor and weave both colors and objects into it. Every slight nuance in treatment produces a picture of a different mood and this mood varies according to the individual tastes of the artist. This is of course an obvious point. Moreover, it is equally obvious that the mood is also automatically dictated by time and place. There is not a solitary bright landscape painted by an English artist. Perhaps the reason is that they dislike bright painting. But with the air they have in England they could not paint one even if they wanted to. Goodall was an Englishman, but the quality of his colours is altogether different, as well it might be, for although English, he never once painted an English scene. He never chose a theme from his own country, but instead painted landscapes of Egypt and Persia where the air is infinitely clearer. His pictures are so vivid that everyone seeing them for the first time is astonished and wonders how an Englishman was able to produce such clarity of colour. Nothing can be done about the divergence of individual tastes but we must at least bring out that quality of air and color which is peculiar to Japan when we take a piece of Japanese scenery as our subject. You cannot say, this is a Japanese landscape, of a picture in which the artist has slavishly copied color tones as they appear in French painting, however much you admire French art. You must meet nature face to face, studying her every shape and form from dawn to dusk, until such time as you feel that you have found just the right colors. You must then grab your tripod and immediately rush out to record them on canvas, for a particular shade lasts but a moment, and once gone will not easily be discovered again. 
The crest of the hill at which I was now looking was full of wonderful colors, the like of which were rarely to be seen in this region of Japan. Having taken the trouble to come here, I felt it a pity to waste this opportunity, and so decided to go and try my hand at reproducing these colors in a picture. <laughs> 